We've been in Ezra chapter 4 for a couple of weeks, and we are going to uh, really finish up some application from last week. Uh, we've stayed on the same topic for a few weeks because, as I said the first week, uh, the passage Ezra 4, 1 through 3 has pretty broad implications, uh, far-reaching implications, implications that come all the way into our day and time uh, as a church universal, and so uh, we've been spending a little more time uh, on the theme of that passage, we looked at Ezra 1, 1 through, or 4, excuse me, 1 through 3, and then we went to 2 Corinthians and spent some time in chapter 6 last week talking about being unequally yoked and what that means. And uh, today, uh, we're going to sort of wrap up that discussion before next week we go into, uh, we go into an Old Testament passage that I think will, uh, will wrap us up completely on this topic for now at least. Uh, you remember in Ezra chapter 4, Israel was offered, offered an opportunity, a unique opportunity. They had come back out of captivity and they had an opportunity to rebuild in their hometown, although many of them who came back were not born there, they were born in captivity. They had this unique opportunity by the hand of God who used Cyrus, a pagan king, to rebuild their place of worship, to rebuild the temple. And you remember what happened in Ezra chapter 4. Uh, their, their neighbors, those who had inhabited the land when Israel was booted out, those who were moved in by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they came to Israel and they said, hey, we've been worshiping your God while you guys were gone. And uh, really, we're just like you. Why don't you let us help you to rebuild the temple? And Israel wisely understood that they were not just like Israel. While they were worshipers of Yahweh, they were worshipers of many other gods just alongside Yahweh. You see, it was true what they said in one sense. They did worship the same God of Israel. They were just like them in a small way, but they were not like them in, in a great way. They had a host of other gods, and uh, because of that, frankly, they were nothing like Israel in their spirituality and their worship. And you know, this is always this has always been the ploy of the devil, right? I mean, this has always been the ploy of the devil, to add error to truth, thus negating the very truth. Adding error to truth has always been a ploy of the devil. Has God ever even subtle error to the truth of the church? It's only a matter of time until the, that bright light that is to be our testimony as a church, it's only a matter of time until that bright light is doused by the error. Of course, for a church that guards against error that guards the truth uh, and guards the integrity of its body, Satan will, Satan will certainly uh, find other means to attack. We'll see in the rest of Ezra chapter 4 that when he couldn't join, when he couldn't infiltrate and corrupt from within, then he began to attack from the outside. And he'll do that. For a church that guards the integrity of the truth that it, that it proclaims, Satan will most surely find other ways to attack. You may be surprised to know that um, there, are, there are churches out there that not only do not guard against this sort of uh, compromise, but in fact invite it in. Yeah. In the name of evangelism, churches all around the world, especially in our country, are unknowingly lowering their guard to error. I say in the name of evangelism because, because the thought is this, some church leaders and congregations, that we should do anything and everything 
that might cause someone to listen to the gospel. And that sounds, that sounds right and that sounds good at the outset. For their initial intent, I give them credit, even. But here's the problem, and I spoke about this early on in the, uh, in the life of our church that uh, I think it's worth talking about briefly again. It's the idea that the duty of evangelism, the responsibility of evangelism, the perspective, the angle of evangelism that our churches are taking in our day, well, it's shifted. It's shifted from an individual responsibility that it's, that it's our job individually as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ, to tell others about the grace that we found, about the mercy that we found. That's an individual responsibility. Historically, that's been true in the church, that that has been the focus, that it's all of our jobs to evangelize. Uh, at some point in recent history, that has shifted, it has turned, and it's no longer your job individually and my job individually, our job collectively, to do the work of the evangelism. It is, it's, it's my job here professionally. It's our job here professionally. It's our job as a church, organizationally, to do the evangelism. And that, that brings some problems. That brings some problems. The focus is organization. So it's no longer your job. It's our job to program it in so that you can invite your friends and family here and we'll give them the gospel. So uh, here's what happens. Now when you go looking for a for a Bible-believing, a Bible-teaching church that holds fast to the truth, that equips the saints, that focuses on biblical priorities. When you go looking for that kind of church, you find instead, most of the time, in the modern church, just one dog and pony show after another. And that's a product, I'll confess, of my generation, in large part. The thought of that church's leadership is this. If they see how nice we are, if they see how hip we are, how cool we are, if they like us, well, then they'll stay, perhaps. And maybe if they stay, they'll down the road decide that they like Jesus, just like they like us. And, well, then maybe they'll give Jesus a try and become Christ followers. And conveniently absent from becoming a Christ follower is the fact that we must take up our cross to follow Christ. And if we actually follow Christ through his 33 years, we find that he ends at a cross intentionally for a purpose, for an eternal purpose, for a bigger reason than just his social life here on earth. More often than not, when our church is focused that way, there's no mention of sin, hell, judgment, being born again. No mention of the cross that must be taken up by each who decides to spiritual endeavor. That's what the church turns into. This quasi-spiritual endeavor that we invite everybody to kind of come on and we'll all do it together and we'll all be on this journey to discover Jesus together. And as we uh, seek to respect the rights of those who are perhaps just investigating the claims of Jesus... Well, we tone down things like the holiness of God. We tone down stuff like the seriousness of the individual sin. And so, the lost, well, maybe they'll stick around a little longer. 
I mean, that's the goal. That we get a bunch of people to come in, and maybe they'll stick around a little longer, and even eventually, supposedly, come to love Jesus. And why? Why do they come to love Jesus? Here's the, here's the motivation. They come to love Jesus because as they watch us and they like us, they, they'll somehow say, you know what, I like these Christ followers, and maybe then Christ isn't so bad, and if I like them, I'll, maybe I'll like Jesus. And so I'll give Jesus, and he can draw a big crowd, and he's a real good talker, and people love to be around him. That's the kind of guy we want up here. Uh, we get a cool worship band up here, a guy with cool hair. Sorry. And... Uh, <laughs> And we do, this whole, we do this whole elaborate theatrical show here in hopes of entertaining those who come out there. We, we bait. We get, we get the most exquisite coffee. That's important. It's a requirement. We put all the baits out there. And the original intent was, must be, that it eventually we'll switch it up and somehow we'll come in and we'll We'll give them the right hook of the gospel. But can I tell you why that that never happens? Because as you're seeking to make more and more people comfortable so that they'll hang around longer and maybe eventually come to like Jesus and love Jesus like we love Jesus because they like us, you see what happens as we are seeking to make them comfortable is we, we remember that the message we have isn't a comfortable message to proclaim. We quickly find out that the most offensive thing to say to someone is that you're a sinner and you're in need of a Savior. You can't save yourself. Someone else has to come in and save you. We don't like that as humans. That's not comfortable. That's not popular. And so we had to make a decision at that point. Do we say that? Unfortunately, I'm afraid many times we don't. And however well-intended the motive was at the outset, it's entirely unbiblical. Here's the danger. Here's the Here's the thing that I fear, okay? Who believe they're on the right path to heaven because they've partnered up with some local church, but they've never personally, individually bowed the knee before Christ, accepting Him as their ransom to their debt of sin. One day, here's the worst part, I can imagine hearing them say, but Lord, Lord, but Lord, didn't, didn't we? And the only thing they'll hear is depart from me. I never, I never really actually knew you. Why? Because there was always this barrier of sin that had never been dealt with. This was the danger of Ezra chapter 4. The danger of 2 Corinthians that we looked at last week that those who returned to rebuild the temple could have absorbed, they could have, right? They could have absorbed those pagan neighbors. They could have absorbed the community into what they were doing and, and allowed them to, to aid them, become partners. No, that's not what they were saying. Certainly they could have joined. But only if they denied their little g-gods and committed to worshiping the one true God. If they don't, for both Ezra and for us today, if they do not, if they do not lay their idols down and declare singular allegiance to the one true God, if they do not, we are not to be unequally yoked in our religious activities with them. It can't, it can't be. 
Listen, listen to this close. There can be no appearance, no appearance even, of spiritual community or commonality between light and dark, righteousness and lawlessness, Christ and Satan. Isn't that what we saw in 2 Corinthians last week? It doesn't make sense. More than that, when we do that, it condescends upon Jesus, number one. It corrupts the purity of the body of Christ, number two. And most importantly for this conversation, number three, it all out confuses the one who is lost. It's not telling them the truth. So how do we protect from this? How do we as a church protect from this? How do we protect the holiness of God, the purity of the church, and how do we protect the gospel for the lost person? You see, we're doing this for the lost person. This discussion is... It has intentions for the lost. Because if we, if we get this right, if we get this right, it is to the benefit of the lost. The responsibility of evangelism back in your hands. From up here to your seats. From here on the professional level, however you view the leadership of this church, the organization of this church, into your hands, into your hearts, into your minds. It is your duty as a born-again believer. I said this before, and it's worth saying again. Hear Hear me closely. If inviting people to church is your evangelism strategy, your personal evangelism strategy is inviting people to church. Stop, please, inviting people to church. And I say that with all the shock value that I can muster. Evangelism is not getting people to join a church. It's not getting people to come to Cornerstone. That's not evangelism. It can't be your evangelism strategy. That's putting it on the professional's when that trumps all other priorities, then we won't buy into this friendship evangelism strategy that says, in essence, this. If they like us, they'll love our Jesus. If we get them to like us, if we serve them enough so that they think, man, those are good old folk out there, cornerstone. Let's give their Jesus a try. Can I say, let me say a word right here, because I want to be clear. The Bible demands, and stronger than that, let me rephrase this, the Bible demands that we be likable as believers, as Christians in our community, but stronger than that, that we be above reproach in the eyes of our lost friends and neighbors. The emphasis, however, don't miss this, the emphasis, however, in all of those passages is always the fact that our life, our life, is never to conflict with the message of the gospel. Our lives are never to be roadblocks or detriments to the message of the gospel. Our lives are to affirm the gospel, yes, and they're not to be themselves the gospel. There is a difference, and I believe, 
I think it's one worth noting. The gospel is not about our likability, but man's sin and Christ's sacrifice. Our lives are are to be the backdrop, the clean, unobstructing. So, what do we do? Here's what you do. You lovingly, you lovingly preach the truth of the gospel. Individually, you take up that responsibility. We'll continue to place an emphasis on equipping the saints for the works of the ministry as a, as a professional organization, if you will. In turn, this place, Christianity, won't become a spiritually ambiguous place that houses anyone and everyone's idols. Whatever they want to bring, it's all, it's all good. Doing that, we thereby desecrate the name of Christ, pollute the Christian. And we give false assurance, we give false assurance to the believer, to the unbeliever, excuse me. All right, now listen closely to this last part because I, I want to be clear, especially if you're here and you're not positive that you are born again, okay? If you're not positive that you are not born again, please, holy God, We cannot compromise what we have been mandated to do here. We can't do that. In hopes of making those who are in danger of hell feel more comfortable so that one day down the line they somehow nestle into a relationship with Christ. We can't do that. Incidentally, you you don't grow into a relationship with Christ any more than a dog can grow into a lion. Birth determines your identity. Birth determines your identity. You must be born into a relationship with Christ. Jesus said, you must be born again. Born of the Spirit. I heard a preacher this week. I heard a preacher say of his church, he was speaking to the lost, but he he was speaking of his church, that this place, this church, must be, quote, a safe place for you. This, this is a safe place for you, is what he said. And I understand, and I think his motives were pure, his intentions were pure in what he said, and I agree in at least this sense, that in this place, and again I'm speaking to those of you who, who may not be confident that you have been born again, In this place, I pray you feel safe from the condemnation of men. I said last week that when you come in here, I pray you get a warm handshake. I pray you see humbleness in the eyes of those who call this place home. Condemnation of men. We're sinful just like you. We are in need of grace just like you. But with that said, if you've yet to be born again, if your debt of sin is still yet unpaid, if your debt of sin is still yet unpaid, then you should, in this way, not feel safe in the presence of a holy God as we invite him into this place. You should tremble at the thought. I pray, I pray his, his presence terrifies you to sobriety. I pray you find yourself this morning safe, from us, yeah. 
but not from God. With a heart, <laughs> with a heart as full of compassion as I can muster, full of love that I can muster for you, um, I pray that you find yourself this morning a sinner. A sinner in the hands of an angry God. Just bow your head, close your eyes kind of deal, okay? Here's what I do want you to do. I want you to focus on what I read. And I don't want you to be distracted by its length. I don't want you to be distracted by its, by its grammar. I want you to hear the words. I want them to go to your heart. I want you to listen to the Spirit as He convicts you, perhaps. Incidentally, when Jonathan Edwards first preached this message, he intentionally did it in a monotone way of preaching. There was nothing flamboyant about it. It was truth and truth alone. That those who were there were said to have wept and moaned aloud throughout the preaching of the message. Can you imagine that? That the truth cut them to the heart, the spirit burdened their heart so that, and it wasn't common in that day any more than it is today, but those who were courageous enough to listen to truth, they wept and they moaned aloud being convicted by God. So you just find a place on the floor to stare at for the next couple moments, will you? The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher to an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty it is when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back. Waters that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open in the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power and if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all that you keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. You will be, you will be fully convinced of it. However unconvinced you may be now of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you see that it is, and it was so with them. For destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they expected nothing of it. And while they were saying peace and safety, now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety 
were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent in ours. You have offended him infinitely. More than ever, a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to awake again this morning in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep, and there is no other reason to be given why God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you should not have gone to hell since you have sat here in the very house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given any reason why you don't this very moment, in fact, drop into hell. Oh, sinner. Oh, sinner. Consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned already in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in a mediator, and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you ever have done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you even one more very misery to all eternity. You know not who they are or in what seats they sit or what thoughts they now have. It may be they are now at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance and are now, in fact, flattering themselves that they are not the persons, promising themselves that they shall escape if we knew that there was one person, just one, in the whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight it would be to see such a person. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over that one? But alas, instead of one, how many is it likely who will remember this discourse in hell? And it would be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time, even before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health, quiet and secure, should be there before tomorrow morning. Those of you that finally continue in a natural condition that shall keep out of hell the longest, well, you will be there in a little while. Your damnation does not slumber. It will come swiftly. 
and in all probability very suddenly upon many of you. You have no reason to wonder that you are not already in hell. That heretofore appeared as likely to have been now alive as you are. Their case is past all hope. They are crying in extreme misery and perfect despair. But here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day's opportunity such as you now enjoy? And now you have an extraordinarily unique opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in, calling and crying with a loud and patient and merciful voice to poor sinners. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of for their souls. Lord, would you continue to knock on their heart? You are a holy, a holy God. We are mere sinners. The mercy, the mercy of your powerful hands. Lord, I pray that while your your hand of wrath is being restrained by your hand of mercy for just this short time longer, how long we know not, but while your hand of mercy reaches out to us, Lord, would you prick hearts this morning? Prick hearts of those who, uh, who are right now talking themselves out of making any sort of move here in the next moment. For the sake of pride, Father, they're perhaps giving up their soul. Would you move inside their heart to remain where they are and therefore to remain in their sin? Would you give them the faith to take that first step toward the cross? Lord, we're not playing church here. This is not a social group. It is not a a country club for the moral. We have a message of hope. It is a hard word. But Father, the news is so great.
that while we once see Jesus not esteemed, Lord, when we fully see, when we fully see you for who you are, we realize your beauty. Just enough with yourself. And if you were courageous enough to be honest with yourself, and you look deep into your heart and you said, you know, I don't know that I've ever, I have ever fully and completely grasped the weight of my sin, understood my desperate need for a Redeemer. I've never given Jesus my life. Um, then put your pride to the side. Can I tell you, we'll do nothing but rejoice. We'll do nothing but rejoice. Today is the day of your salvation. There may not be another. Let's sing.